0: but what is it that uh, sets the course of a nation or, or a family or, or something, you know, something like that, a people group? What sets their course? I, I find it fascinating that even as late as the 20th century, so if you think about it, that's before social media, that's before Twitter accounts and stuff like that. Before those, before those days, one man, one person could radically change the course of a nation. Really interesting. I don't know if that's true today. Perhaps it still is. There's a number of examples that I could give you of this, but perhaps none more remarkable than Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. You heard of him? Some of you will have done. He was the founder and the first president of the Republic of Turkey. This is really interesting. Wikipedia lists some of this man's achievements. Okay, listen to this. Ataturk... Uh, initiated a rigorous program of political, economic, and cultural reforms with the ultimate aim of building a modern, progressive, and secular nation-state. This is in a country that's largely Islamic. He made primary education free and compulsory. He opened thousands of new schools all over the country. He, this is amazing. He introduced the Latin-based Turkish alphabet replacing the old Ottoman Turkish alphabet. Imagine how big that is to do. To change everybody's, what would you do if someone did that to you, said, right, from now on we're using Greek characters, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, ooh, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? That's incredible. And during his presidency, Turkish women received equal civil rights and political rights, in particular, voting rights uh, in local elections, and then later on, full universal suffrage, all right at the beginning of the 20th century. All of this in a country that is predominantly Islamic. I'm mean, going emphasize that, predominantly Islamic. Look at, the, look at the countries around Turkey and stare in wonder at what this man achieved. One man. He even banned the wearing of feathers. Can you believe that? Apparently Tommy Cooper didn't get the memo. <laughs> it feels like today, especially in the West, there's just so many voices trying to influence us that uh, you know, very few individuals can really rally the masses behind them in, in a way like that. But it is phenomenal, isn't it? But this was always the power that a really good, powerful patriarch or matriarch, a matriarchal figure, uh, had. They could set the course of a family, of a city, of a nation. And that's precisely what you see here in the second half of Genesis 4 as we carry on with the story, the genealogy, the line, the family of Cain. We had Cain introduced to us last week. Cain is a patriarch who is going to set the course of his family line. Something that the New Testament will actually call, John in the New Testament will call, the way of Cain. There's there's something about this. There's a line, there's a thought, there's a way of living that's the way of Cain, and he's going to set that course. Now, Genesis chapters 4 and 5, if you've got them open in front of you, in those two chapters, you've basically got two family lines. Moses is giving us two parallel genealogies. Both of them have 10 names in them. Interesting. Basically, you've got here uh, a bad line and a good line. That's what you're going to see in these chapters. We'll look at what makes them bad and good in, in a little bit. But let's recap where we were, just for those of you who might have missed the last couple of weeks. Adam and Eve have been cast out of the Garden of Eden. That's where we are in the story. The most significant thing about this, really, I suppose, in, in the big sweep of things, is now they are, and we're to think of them this way, as being away from God. The easy, honest, close relationship that they had with God in the garden, where they would walk with him in the cool of the day, it sounds so casual, doesn't it? That's been lost. That intimacy is lost. And they've lost their place of blessing, and now they've now got to survive in the outside world that is full of the groans and curses of God. And we saw last week that... The first two sons of Adam and Eve were born outside of the garden, and both of them set out to approach God in some way. This is the first story we get. They're trying to approach God to have some kind of relationship with God again, and they do this by making an offering, beginning of chapter four. Abel sets out to do this the right way. He approaches God by faith, with a heart full of trust, with a heart that really values God as it ought to. He's got God in the right place. He understands who God is. And so he brings the best and the fattest offerings from his flocks. He goes to get the best he has. And Cain sets out the wrong way. He does not approach God by faith. That's essentially what's happened. He seems to believe that God somehow will owe him something because he's made the effort to, make, to bring an offering. It's a, it's a classic example, actually, of how human religion works. It's a, it's a really good one. This, If you want to know if a religion has a human origin or not, it's probably going to follow this same pattern. People tend to think that God Operates. If they don't, don't read the scriptures, they tend to think that God operates something like a cosmic vending machine, yeah? As long as I put the right coins into the slot, God ought to drop the goods. They ought to rattle out the bottom and be there for me to pick up. It's to fail to realize that God is holy. He is sovereign. He owes us Nothing. And when it doesn't happen, when God doesn't deliver the goods through that kind of religion, when Abel's offering is accepted, and he can't understand why that would be, but Cain's is not. Well, Cain hits the roof. He's full of anger. He cannot give the vending machine a a kick, can he? But he can do the next best thing. That's what we have as the first story here. He attacks the one person that he knows reflects the image of God looks most like God around him and that's his brother and he murders him and when God confronts him for his crime well Cain just tries to hide it doesn't he there's no sign in the story of sorrow or regret or repentance nothing Cain has been mastered by the sin that is crouching at his door. He's not only opened that door, he's put out the welcome mat. He's made a cup of tea and got the biscuits out. He's welcomed resentment and anger and murder into his heart. And he tries to cover it up, but his brother's blood is crying out against him. That's what the the verses tell us, isn't it? God hears the cry of Abel's blood. And Cain knows that his then, as he's been found out, his will be a death sentence. Uh, You know, everybody's going to know what he did. They'll be out to kill him. So he pleads for his life. He wants to save his own skin. And out of his great mercy, this is how God is. This is how gracious God is. This is how merciful God is. God puts a mark of protection on Cain as he sends him away. But as Cain departs, it is clear. Cain is done with God. He wants nothing to do with God. And so God gives him what he wants. He is banished away from God. Banished to wander further and further away from the presence of God and all of his blessings. And that's where we find him in our reading. So if you'll look down with me, uh, let's just pick it up at verse 16. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence. There it is. And he lived in the land of Nod east of Eden. And Cain lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Now the name Nod or Nod, which is annoying, isn't it? Because we send children to the land of Nod at at bedtime. But apparently the name means something like homeless, the land of homelessness. Cain's living there. And we're going to pick up his story now. But, of course, the real question you all want the answer to is, of course, where did Cain get his wife? <laughs> well, we've got, we've got this elephant in the room, and we have to deal with it, don't we? It's a distraction, actually, that question, really, in the plot of the story when you think about it. But it shouldn't actually really worry us, I don't think. Taken at face value, it seems Cain's wife was either his sister or his niece. It's as simple as that. Chapter 5, verse 4 tells us Adam had an unspecified number of sons and daughters, many, many sons and daughters over a very long life. Now, that might make you and I go, ew, right? But it wasn't a morally wrong thing to do, actually. This was a very different world. Any laws about marrying a sister or a close relation, they don't come until the days of Moses, thousands of years later. In fact, actually, as you go through the patriarchs, Abraham, Abraham, the first patriarch, he marries his half-sister, Sarah. I'm no expert in genetics, but I do recall learning a little bit about genes and stuff like that when I was doing my science at school. Uh, And I recall that the problem, actually, with marrying a close relation has to do with two individuals being too similar genetically. I'm looking in the eyes (laughs) in the direction of people who might know this. Uh, Genetic information, you see, gets diluted over the generations and and and, and, and concentrated. But being as the entire human genome is in Adam and Eve at this point, a sister could be genetically very different from a brother. Anyway, that's, that's my science. One book makes an interesting point and puts it this way. A stream is purer at its source than at its mouth. Who would not prefer to drink from the Mississippi in Upper Minnesota than in New Orleans? That works for Americans, doesn't it? But you get the picture, don't you? You, you want to drink from the spring, not from the muddy bit that goes out into the sea. He adds this interesting. This author. This is a, a, quite an old author. He says Adam married Adam married an ev- one even closer than his sister. He married his own rib. <laughs> How do you like that? <laughs> Point taken. Anyway, so please don't let that be a distraction to you as we go through this story. (laughs) Cain and his wife, whoever she may be, produce their first child, and they name him Enoch. And what follows are the names of subsequent generations that bring the genealogy from Adam all the way through to Lamech and his three sons. If you count the names, you've got 10 names in total, verses 19 to 22 there. This is the line of Cain his descendants, presumably, that go all the way from Adam all the way through to the flood that's going to come in chapter 6. What characterizes, then, the line of Cain? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Well, what characterizes them is they live away from God. They are people who are away from God. They have no fear of God. Cain sets them, they're, they're... uh, Forbear sets them in a direction where we would have to conclude they are living as if there is no God with no regard to God. we'll get a pretty good description of where that all ends when we get to chapter six with some sort of summary statements. but here in this genealogy we're giving at least we're given at least four things that I can see that characterize The way of Cain. Let me show you what the way of Cain is. The first one might be slightly surprising. The first is cities. Cities. Look at verse 17. Cain lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city. And he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad. And Irad was the father of Mahujel. And Mahujel was the father of Mahushiel. And Mahushiel was the father of Lamech. I just say it with confidence, right? I don't know if they're really, those are the real names. Uh, Okay, Cain builds a city, that's the point. He is the first recorded city dweller. So what's what's wrong with cities? Well, nothing per se. It's what they stand for that's actually important here. What does a city stand for? Now, by the way, uh, the Hebrew word for a city is very loose. It's very broad. It can be anything from a pretty small set settlement all the way through to a, to a, you know, a metropolis. Cities, first of all, then, what's wrong with them? Well, they're about security. They're about security. Sticking a wall up around you. The way of Cain, what characterizes Cain, is to find shelter and security and safety in the strength and in the wisdom and in the ingenuity of man. That's the problem. Not looking to God for those things. I'm going to put the wall up myself. We're going to gather together. We're going to stand strong. The second thing about cities is cities are places where ideologies propagate. You clump people together, they start sharing ideas. And that can be a good thing and that could be a bad thing. We're living in like a global city now, aren't we? Imagine, I mean, can you imagine 50 years ago the idea that, an I, that, that someone can come up with an idea somewhere the other side of the world and within 24 hours it's being talked about in the playgrounds in school? It's phenomenal, the global city, and that can be good, it can be bad. In an environment like that, sinful ideas, wrong ideas, can spread like wildfire. That's one of the problems of cities. And thirdly, cities also stand for, and I think this is the big thought here, they stand for posterity, about leaving your mark on the world. That's what a city is. I mean, what's the city's name? Yeah, It doesn't matter if this bloke dies. The name of Enoch stands firm. It has a wall, it has a place, it has a location... It's putting the name of a man on the map. That's the point here. Our name is on the map. Leaving your mark, making a name for yourself. Cities in the Bible get named after their founding fathers. So the way of Cain is marked by finding security, by finding significance away from our creator. Pooling resources, pooling everything together so that we can make a name and a stand for ourselves. And all of that, despite the reality. What's the reality? That we owe all of our strength and life and success to God, not to ourselves. Cities epitomize the might of man, you see. It's God who provides these things. And so the city founding line of Cain will boast about how they made themselves and how they can stand on their own two feet. That's the first characteristic. The second characteristic is, is perversion. Perversion. The books tell me that in a genealogy of the ancient Near East, one should spay, pay special attention to the seventh name on the list. Okay? I, I don't know. know. But anyway, it does, it does bear out, because if you look at the seventh name on the list in the next genealogy, you'll actually find, again, more details given about that character. Yeah, his life is filled in a bit. We'll find that about that next time. But anyway, who is the seventh name on the list? Well, in this case, it's Lamech, this character Lamech. Let's read about him. Verse 19, Lamech married two women, one named Arda and the other Zillah. Arda gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Well, here we have the first occasion of polygamy, the twisting, the warping of God's designs for the family unit. That's the line of Cain, the way of Cain, is, I think, in essence, to be driven by our desires, by what we feel, rather than the patterns and designs laid down by God. <coughs> it's starting to happen right here, isn't it? This is the line that thinks it's it knows better than God's way, that thinks that breaking away from those rep- repressed and restrictive designs of God will actually bring more happiness and more freedom, but pulling away from God's designs, especially here in the arena of of, of marriage that we're seeing it here, will always result in pain and suffering. You watch and see. It will always go there. It doesn't bring happiness. It never delivers what we think it will in our wisdom. And there will be then several key figures in the Old Testament narrative as we go through these stories who will try the root of polygamy. They'll go there, following their desires, following their feelings. And it is never a happy situation. It will always bring conflict and strife. It will never bring a blessed home. Well, amongst the achievements, we read there, of Lamech's sons appears to be the development of raising livestock. We have the first music industry. And we have the forging of all kinds of metal tools. All of these things are good gifts from God. God's common grace, you see, gives gifts and abilities to men and women, whether they're godly or ungodly. It's God's grace that we have all of these wonderful things, technologies. But this is the key. What will Cain's line, what will the way of Cain Put, what, what use will it put these good things to? Yeah, what will it do with them? Got some good stuff here, developments, progress. What will we do with it? Well, take a look. The first song recorded is in the verses that follow. You want to see the first song? We're going to see in this song the third characteristic of the way of Cain, and that is violence. Verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, or sung to his wives... I'm, I'm not going to try and do this. But I, I picture in my head some kind of, this is some kind of rap. Yeah? <laughs> Arda and Zilla, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I killed a man for wounding me. A young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech, 77 times. Yeah, you can see it. Can you picture, picture this guy? The first song's about killing. It's about violence. And the metal forging of his other son would surely have come in pretty handy for making some weapons to do this with. Is that how they'll use the good gifts God has given them? This is the original gangster rap right here. Lamech is some kind of anti fiddy fiddicent. Uh, now, that sentence right there has probably confused, no, I reckon, 90% of you. <laughs> anti deluvian What's going on there? Fiddicent? Who on earth? Violent, boastful songs, they go way back. They're as old as time. Lamech boasts to his wives, some young punk thought he could mess with me, so I ended him. That's really what the story is saying, isn't it? It's what the song's about. And if you think Cain was bad, you know our forefather boasts, boasts Lamech, well, think again great-great-great-granddad has got nothing on me. Lamech is, look at the song, 70 times worse. And he doesn't need God to avenge him. He'll do it with his own hands. That's what this is. Wow. The way of Cain is to create a world that treats the life of others as cheap and disposable. Just gives vent to our anger a world that becomes desensitized to violence and to taking another person's life. This murderous intent, it fails to recognize the value of human beings, that they are made in the image of God. Either that or it despises the image of God so much that it wants to lash out. And the problem with violence is that violence begets violence, isn't it? As Jesus put it he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. This is, n- this, is a, this is a way of life that goes nowhere good. How often through history, even recent history, do we see vendettas passed down over generations, creating a culture of anger and fear where innocent bystanders are caught up in the wake of it all? It's dreadful. At the heart of it all is the idea that, in some sense, I can lift myself up by crushing others by intimidating people, schoolroom, boardroom. I will be feared. I will be respected. The final characteristic I think that we see here of the way of Cain is pride. This is how it ends. And it's right there in the song. Lamech is, this is just a shocker, isn't it? He is boastful about his murderous intent. Cain succumbed to his murderous urges. But Lamech, I mean, he's beyond that. He's reveling in his murderous urges. With every generation, you see, there's this, there's this downgrade, this going downwards. Seems to be just getting worse and worse. This is humanity, despite all of its technological and cultural advances. Here it is, swirling and spiraling down the pan. Going down the drain morally and ethically. And somewhere near the bottom, you see men and women lifting their head high and having silenced the voice of their conscience, proclaiming their sin to be something they are in fact proud of. What a portrait, hey? And that's the beginning. That's going